Welcome back to The Shepherd's Pie, a slice of faith for our messy lives. I'm Tony Kolank. I'm a professor at Ave Maria School of Law, the father of five grown children, and the author of inspirational fiction for both teens and adults. As you know, my book five released last year in the Harwood Mysteries. At the end of this year, we'll have book six, but exciting news is this Lent. I have a new novel coming out from our Sunday visitor called Penny and the Stolen Chalice. That's also going to be a great middle grade read, so you can find out about all those releases on my website, antonycolank.com. But today we are speaking with Melissa Odin about the incredible and moving stories of those who have survived an abortion attempt and how faith has helped them thrive. My guest today is Melissa Odin. She is the founder and director of the Abortion Survivors Network, which is the only healing and advocacy organization for abortion survivors. She herself is the survivor of a failed saline infusion abortion. She's a master's level prepared social worker, and she's the author of two books, her first, You Carried Me, a daughter's memoir, and her new release, which is called Abortion Survivors Break Their Silence from Tyndale. Melissa is a frequent contributor to pro-life and conservative news outlets. She's a regular guest on radio and television, such as Fox News, Focus on the Family, Hannity, and much more than that. And she's testified before Congress numerous times. So she's a sought-after expert, speaker, and a writer on abortion survivors, faith, and other pro-life issues. And her and her husband, Ryan, live in Missouri with their two daughters. Melissa, it is such an honor to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. Writer to writer, right? Writer to writer. Very few writers have as compelling a story as you do, um, especially as uh, we head into another cycle of the pro-life movement after Roe v. Wade, and we've seen all the challenges with that. Maybe tell us just a little bit about you know your uh, network that you helped to found and some of your writing. Yeah, I think all of us go on these journeys where we think we know how God has called us to use our gifts in the world. And for me, it is such an incredible adventure because this is not what I intended to do with my life. I've always enjoyed writing. I've always been somebody who feels led to serve other people well and fight for what is true and good in the world. But I never thought years ago that I would write about my own experience, write about abortion survivors, and really that I would form a nonprofit that serves survivors and families around the world. So the Abortion Survivors Network is a fairly young nonprofit. We were founded in 2019, really because I spent about seven years doing everything I could for survivors. Everywhere I went, I would hear stories and I would connect them with a a counselor. I would help them publish their story, bring them to meet members of Congress, whatever it was I could do to help them. And all the while I would pray and say, man, Lord, could you show me the person who can build this organization, who can truly care, help them heal, bring about community for survivors, heal families who have been so broken by abortion, you know, show me that person. And suddenly, 
20, really in 2019, when we saw such aggressive abortion being introduced. We saw New York light up pink to celebrate it. We saw all of these things happening. More survivors and parents than ever were reaching out and saying, we need help. And I think that's when I really hit the end of myself. And I prayed and I prayed and I was so broken. And really, that's when I realized that I was the person that God had called to fill in that gap. I'm grateful for that. I have been so blessed to know more survivors than ever. We've now reached over 700 abortion survivors. And so our youngest survivors are babies right now who have just survived the first attempt to abort them. And moms at greater risk than ever of having another abortion with them. We saw that in the adult survivors that we serve, but really we have seen this so significantly after Roe was overturned. Women are reaching out after they find out their abortions have failed and they are at risk and considering aborting again. And they're being pressured by doctors to abort again. And so those are our youngest survivors. Our oldest survivors are in their 80s and 90s, but we hear from survivors. There were survivors decades ago. We hear from generations who know that it happened in their family. So we do healing. We offer a community, which is life-changing in and of itself. We provide support for survivors to find and use their voice. We equip them to be vocal and involved in their communities and regions as advocates. And we do an upper tier of ambassadors. We have social workers who serve moms who are walking through that right now, who are at risk of aborting again, and they need help. They need hope. We offer support groups for moms to get together and even adoptive families who are grappling with, you know, how do I handle an open adoption? How do I ever tell my child their story? There is so much that we do. It is really such an, an honor to do this work. Excellent. Uh, so let's rewind your story then and kind of maybe walk us through uh, your life and uh, how you got to where you would establish this organization. Yeah, I don't think anybody could have had the eyes in their heart to start this organization if they hadn't walked through it themselves. So the truth is that babies were surviving abortions long before Roe versus Wade. Babies like me survived during the time of Roe and babies, yes, are still surviving today and you wouldn't know it by looking out at our popular culture out there. But the truth is, yes, babies survive every type of abortion procedure at every gestation. I survived the most common abortion procedure back in the 1970s, a saline infusion abortion. It involved injecting a toxic salt solution into the amniotic fluid surrounding me in the womb, and it was intended to poison and scald me to death. Typically, that procedure lasted about three days. They would have the child soak in that toxic salt solution, and then they would induce labor, and the deceased child would be expelled from the womb. But we know through my medical records that it lasted for five days. So they kept that continuous salt solution going. They kept trying to induce my birth mother's labor, and they just did not succeed until the fifth day. Of course, they thought it would be successful. That's the intention, right? The intent is for every abortion to be successful in taking the child's life. But on that fifth day, when I was expelled from the womb, they then realized that I was alive. When did you first realize that this had happened to you? I did not find out my story until I was 14. So ultimately, you know, here I was born alive by a set of miraculous circumstances. A nurse rushed me off to the NICU, unwilling to leave me to die, which is what they had been ordered to do. And I spent about three months in the NICU before I went home to my adoptive family. So grew up knowing I was adopted and deeply, deeply loved. But like most parents in that position, my mom and dad thought keeping it quiet was the best thing to do for me. And back then, right, there was no organization like ours that they could have turned to to say, hey, could you support me in this? Can we talk 
talk about this. So they did what I think most parents think they should do, and they kept it quiet. When I was 14, my older sister, who's also adopted, faced an unplanned pregnancy. When my mom and dad knew that she was facing that unplanned pregnancy as a high school student and wasn't sure what kind of decisions she would make, they told her the story of my survival. That was, you know, about 32 years ago. My sister did choose life for him. He's an amazing man. He's an incredible father. He's a member of the military. And, you know, sadly, he could have been another statistic when it comes to abortion. But I truly believe God knew exactly what he was doing because not only did his life get spared by that, but that's ultimately how I found out my life story. My sister found out and during an argument, she let it slip to me. You know, in hindsight, it was horribly painful, but I love that I can look back on that moment and see just how far God has brought my entire family. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, my wife and I are also, we're teen pregnancy. And so, you know, unless somebody goes kind of through that decision making, it's hard to put yourself in the shoes of a girl who has to make those decisions. So at some point, you did discover who your biological mom was. And what happened with that? Yeah, so I found out my story when I was 14, definitely struggled, right? Back then, I had no idea that that babies survived abortions. So it was a very lonely place to be. But sadly, I can tell you that it is still that lonely of a place for most survivors today, because it's very much a family secret. Our culture heaps so much shame on anybody whose voice doesn't fit the predominant narrative about abortion. And so survivors carry this great weight. But, you know, finding out years ago that I was not the only one really started to set me free. Really, God working in my life to offer forgiveness towards my biological parents really set me free and set me on this journey to find them. And so I spent about 10 years searching for my biological parents and trying to obtain my medical records. And it was in 2007 that I obtained those records and found out who they were. I learned that I was living in the same city as my biological father at the time. I never was able to meet my biological father. He passed away before we ever had an opportunity to meet. And really my path to my birth mother lasted even longer because my mom and dad had no idea the depths of the secrets that existed around that abortion. So, you know, found out who she was in 2007 and really didn't start to communicate then with her until 2013. So it took a couple of rounds of communication with her family. And really the biggest secret was that she had lived over 30 years of her life believing that the abortion had been successful. She was told that day at the hospital that it had worked. I was ultimately placed for adoption without her even knowing that I had survived. You can imagine how shocking it is for someone to find out these kind of circumstances, but at the same time, the great blessing for her that her child lived. You know, for me, that's one of the most painful things I walk through is when women reach out to me or to the abortion survivors network saying, could you help me find out if my baby survived my abortion? So many women want what my birth mother has. And, you know, really God has worked in such a beautiful way in her life and mine. We started to communicate in 2013 because I didn't know it, but we moved from the city where my birth father lived to now the city where my birth mother lives. (laughs) My birth mom lives here in the Kansas City Metro. And so does one of my half sisters. I was just communicating with her on her birthday. I mean, we talk as frequently as we can, but there is something so sacred and so beautiful about the opportunities that we have to have one another in our lives. And it's really inexplicable for me to put into words what it's like. Just, you know, that God ordained all of these things. Yeah, maybe this is a good time to talk about faith. 
How did faith impact your journey? And I'm I'm very interested in how faith has impacted your ability to reconcile with your biological mom. My mom and dad were very faith-filled people. You know, I can't tell you what I had for dinner last night, but I can tell you who the pastor was of our church when I was like three years old, right? It was just, that was our family. That's how I grew up. And I think one of the things I love the most about my mom and dad is that they really raised us to have a heart of mercy towards other people, just unconditional love time and time again. And when I now know everything that I do about my birth mom and her family, I realize what a gift that was. There was not unconditional love in my birth mother's house, right? Everything was very, very conditional and so painful. And so that was in and of itself, really the foundation of faith in our home was forgiveness and unconditional love. And sort of fast forward to my teenage years, you know, even though I sort of grappled with my faith and really tried to keep a little bit of distance from God when I was very broken and not because of him, right? It was about me and my sin and and how I felt about myself and that that made me uncomfortable. Yet at the same time, I always knew that he was there. And that was the most comforting thing for me is when I was struggling with who I was as, as a survivor, I woke up every day knowing that God intended for me to live and he intended more for me than what I was letting myself really live with. God has been my anchor throughout my life. You know, I went through kind of this other transition. I went deeper into my faith in my 20s and then ended up converting to the Catholic Church after I had a miscarriage. Now I can't imagine anywhere except for where we are in our faith. I'm sure that there are some people who will be listening to the show who have something that was broken in their lives. It might not be what you had broken in your life, but do you have any kind of words for them on from your own experiences? Like, how can you keep your faith? How can you rely on your faith when you might feel as, as broken as some of us do at times? Yeah, I think the thing that always brings me peace is knowing that God never leaves our side. If we feel this absence from God, that's about us. It's not about him. And I think that's one of the most important things to recognize. And also that God's plans may not look like we expect them to. I mean, if we're being very honest, most of the time, God's plans do not look the way we expect them to. But that's a good thing. We may not be able to see that right now. And, you know, honestly, I'm historically a very impatient person. I'm a type A, get it done. It should have been done yesterday. I want to know the plan. And (laughs) that's not the way that it goes. Really, that is a blessing in and of itself to live in that place. I know that we get impatient and we want to know, but I would say just stay peaceful and stay calm and let God work it out. I think I've messed up a lot of things in my life when I'm trying to push, push, push. Let him work. Let's go back to some survivors. The first time I even realized there was such a thing was I heard a talk uh, from somebody you might know, uh, maybe not, uh, Jana Jensen. Of course. And <laughs> and she gave a very powerful talk that I found on the internet, actually on YouTube, and I actually used to share pieces of it when I was teaching constitutional law at a secular school, and we would get to Roe v. Wade. One thing I noticed, though, is the survivors of abortion often have health issues and other issues. Can you tell us a little bit about the survivors that you've interacted with, and maybe even educate us a little bit on, on why some of them may be suffering from health issues? Right. That's one of those burning questions is like, how often does this happen? Um, why does this happen? And what are 
people's lives like. We can't unfortunately trust our culture to give us the answers. And we don't have good data. We don't even know how many abortions take place in our country. So of course, we don't have good data on how many babies survive. But what I could tell you is based on Canadian data, and that's really the best data that's out there, we've correlated that, our research associate did, and we found a 0.21% failure rate out of Canada. Interestingly enough, Australia also has similar statistics, and they run at a very similar failure rate. They ended up being like closer to 0.22. When you correlate that to the United States, what it looks like is in the last reporting period, that was about 1,734 babies who would have survived an abortion. Keep in mind that that's also on the low end of that estimate, because it wouldn't include at-home attempts to abort, which is being pushed now more than ever. It doesn't include chemical abortions, and it doesn't include successful abortion pill reversal. So we are talking about thousands of babies who survive abortions a year. Now, what do their lives look like? They're very healthy overall. Yes, there are some survivors who are missing limbs, who have cerebral palsy. We have a lot of survivors who do tend to have varying degrees of cerebral palsy. We have some folks who have disfigurement, whether it's disfigurement to their face, you know, sometimes scalps have been completely pulled back. We have folks who have had slash marks all over their body. But by and large, most of our suffering is quiet, internal, right? It's emotional, it's mental, it's spiritual, it's that battle because really trauma in the womb rewires you. And so then we sort of have this fight or flight response to everything. You know, unfortunately, if families don't go through healing or survivors don't have a lot of support, then that continues on, right? More fight or flight, more trauma puts people more at risk of, you know, even having an abortion themselves. We see high numbers of that actually in our female survivors. So yes, we have a lot of diverse experience as survivors, but most really, if you passed us on the street, you would have no idea that we have survived the kind of things that we have. So tell me about your new release then. How many abortion survivors are we hearing about in your book? And, and how did you pull this book together? Yeah, this book has been a labor of love. Abortion survivors break their silence. And really, it was my opportunity to give a voice to survivors who otherwise would be voiceless. You know, even though we know that there are 1000 survivors a year, thousands of us, the reality is most of them are never going to share their story. And they shouldn't have to, you know, women shouldn't have to tell their story either of experiencing a failed abortion or an abortion they stop or that they reverse. But if they want their story to be shared so it makes a difference in someone else's life and it changes our culture, I am so grateful for that opportunity. So in this book, you hear of 10 other stories. We also include the voices of a couple of those women. So moms who have experienced this. So one woman stopped her late-term abortion that she started. Her child is now about 12. That's Vanessa's story in the book. Her mom is Rashida. And then we also hear the voice of a mom who had a successful abortion pill reversal, my friend Rebecca Hagen, which many people know Becky for sharing her story over the years. But I also share the story of Jill Stanick, who held an abortion survivor at a hospital in Illinois. And, you know, sadly, we know that that response of the hospital back then was to create a more beautiful, comforting room where people could hold an abortion survivor until they passed away and take photographs. Somehow this was the solution 
instead of medical care. And then I also share the story of a friend of mine, Dr. Hammond, who is a former abortionist and what it was like for him, what really converted him from that place of performing abortions to now being an incredible pro-life voice. And really it's my hope that people learn the diversity of these experiences so we can have a more educated conversation when our world wants to say this doesn't happen. They don't even know what they're talking about. So I would encourage people to read the book to understand why do these survivors exist? Because it is diverse. They fail, they're stopped, they're reversed. Hear women's voices and try to reconcile that with what is happening in our culture. And then hear from folks like Jill and Dr. Hammond to find out what medical professionals are going through. And then how can people get involved? I really want people to be equipped and activated. When I think about abortion survival, and I think about, for instance, the saline abortion situation, it makes sense to me how that could happen in the past more frequently. But it seems like we've gotten really good at killing here. Besides like your reversal or a mom literally stopping something in the middle of a procedure, how are most of our modern abortion survivals taking place in light of the amount of competence we've gotten in killing babies? You're exactly right. And that's one of the first things I testified before Congress about back in 2015, when they were looking at defunding Planned Parenthood, I essentially called them out and had said, right, you have perfected the very method that that I survived. And certainly that's what they've tried to say then over the years, right? Well, you know, you're not relevant anymore to this conversation, Melissa, stop talking about this because we don't perform that abortion anymore. Well, the reality is all abortion procedures can fail. We have folks who survive dismemberment abortions, especially when there's a twin, right? Because they successfully end the life of one twin and they don't usually know that there's another baby there. So that happens very frequently. We also see where women say will have a DNC for their abortion, right? And I have to say for their abortion, because I don't want people to hear this and go, well, I had a DNC for my miscarriage. That's different, right? The are really abortion saturated culture is trying to say those two things are the same and they're not. It's intent. So women have sometimes a DNC for their abortion. We have some babies who survive a DNC because it appears like the abortionist completely like misses them, which scares me for that woman, right? What's happened to her when the abortionist has missed the baby. But when that happens, there is also some suspicion that there might've been another baby in the womb during those times as well. But when it comes to say like the abortion pill, what I can tell you is that we have women who are taking pills exactly as prescribed and are still finding out they're pregnant. The meta-analysis on abortion pills would tell us there's about a 1.1 to 7.9% failure rate. What we can say is that we see reports of significantly higher failure rates. And especially when you get to that 10-week mark, it drops to about an 84% effectiveness rate. Now, what people need to understand is that women are taking the abortion pill without going to see anybody in a clinic more times than not. They don't know how far along they are. Abortionists don't know how far along they are. That's one of the reasons why we think I survived. They thought my birth mom was 18 to 20 weeks. She was probably more like 31. That's what a neonatologist thought when I was actually born. So we see women not knowing how far along they are and realize as they keep taking that later and later in the pregnancy, the greater the likelihood is going to be that the baby can survive that abortion and go on to live, God willing, a healthy life. We don't always understand why it's different from child to child. Some babies can survive the abortion pill and have absolutely no effects. And there are some babies who can be having disfigurement on their fingers or they have, you know, significant 
significant cognitive impairment. I wish I could say that we understand it all, but we don't. But there's always hope. And as you're uh, seeing in the States, especially the battle for what kinds of laws should we have locally, uh, it sounds like you personally are getting involved in some of these battles. Can you give us a preview as to the kinds of things you see yourself getting involved with in 2024? <laughs> there's going to be a lot going on in 2024. You know, unfortunately, because the other side has made it clear that they intend to make 2024 a battle in the States for abortion. And what I intend to do along with my friends on the public policy side for our organization is really help to have survivors' voices active in their states, because that's what people need to understand is that survivors exist everywhere. We're in your church, we're in your school, you're probably working with us. And I think they need to understand when they're getting out there and voting, this directly impacts people that they know. And so we want survivors to be seen and heard if they feel like they can do that in their region. So we'll be activating more and more survivors to be raising their voices and really just raise awareness about this so that people can understand this in a different way than they ever have before. And certainly that's what I know that we need to do more than ever is raise that awareness, educate people while the other side continues to fear monger and push what they do. Do you find that as the survivor of abortion, you're treated a little better because the other side doesn't know what to do with you and they don't want to treat you too badly um, <laughs> versus maybe some other pro-life activists who might not have that same ability to say, well, let me tell you about myself. Yeah, I think the way that obviously people treat me to my face is very different than the way they treat me online, which is to be said for any of us. I would say, unfortunately, abortion survivors in and of themselves are thrown under the bus time and time again by the media. You know, we saw that after the first presidential debate in August of 2023, when Governor DeSantis mentioned the name of a survivor named Penny. I knew immediately who he was talking about. I know who Penny is. Penny's public with her story. She did an ad campaign with me back in 2019 into 2020. They spent about two weeks in the media throwing her under the bus saying that her story couldn't be true. And as they started to finally investigate it, what they had to admit is that she'd survived a coat hanger attempt to abort her. And I know lots of people who have survived a coat hanger. The other side doesn't even think about that when they're waving them in the air, right? And saying, we're never going to go back. And I'm always saying, man, we don't want to go back to women putting themselves at risk and the baby being subjected to that. No, we don't want to go back to that. But they aren't admitting the fact that it's a baby that's impacted by it. But they really backtracked as that went on. And unfortunately, what they landed on was, well, this is why safe legal abortion is necessary. And that tells us a lot about what the impact of a survivor is, right? Is that we really do raise this collective consciousness and people have to wrestle with what they believe about abortion. And, you know, God willing, I hope that's something that happens with this book as well, is people who think they know, or they don't want to read the stories, or they don't want to hear us, please pick up the book and read it and then wrestle with it a little bit and see where you land. You never know until you open your mind and your heart. If people want to get a copy of your book, or even if they just want to figure out, hey, how do I support this cause? This is really important. Give us some information on that. Sure. The publisher, as you said, is Tyndale. You can visit Tyndale's website for that. You can also go to abortionsurvivorstories.com. You can also go to our website, abortionsurvivors.org to learn more about what we offer 
if you know you're a survivor, if you're a mom who's walking through this, if you're an adoptive family, if you're a professional and you just need help, right? You're a social worker, you work with adoptive parents. We've got lots of training and resources. If you're a pregnancy center and you have women coming through your doors who are experiencing failed abortions, we've got you. We've got materials. So abortionsurvivors.org. And that's how people can find out, you know, if you want to volunteer, if you can offer prayers or financial support, we need all the support and then some. Yeah, we are as grassroots as it gets. And really, we are in this David versus Goliath fight where the other side has no stop to how much funding they have. We're fueled by <laughs> love and prayers more than anything. Uh, it has been so wonderful having you on the show. Thank you for everything that you're doing on such an important cause. And I hope you really are able to change people's uh, hearts and minds as they think about this issue in 2024. Thank you. Uh, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for the show today. Again, we've been speaking with Melissa Odin about surviving abortion and about faith. Again, this is Anthony Barone Kolink. You can check out my website at anthonykolink.com for more information about uh, my writings. But until next time, may God bless us as we rely on our faith to work through the messy challenges of our lives. Thank you.